Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, joined as always by John Adams, and it's Georgia's world. We're just podcasting in it. Uh, we got a lot to get into today. How far should the balls tumble? Will they still make the playoffs? Brian Kelly's continued ascent at LSU. Missouri's in love with Eli Drinkwitz so much they gave him a contract extension. And of course, we'll have our picks. But John, I think we have to start with the the twin narratives of you know, Georgia just confirming after some doubt that it remains college football's team to beat, paired with Alabama losing for the second time this season and is now for all intents and purposes, out of the college football playoff. It'll be just the second time Alabama does not make the playoff. What might this mean for them? So let's start, John, with Georgia. Uh, I thought just a dominant victory against Tennessee. The score only shows two touchdowns. Georgia was up by 18 at halftime and then pretty much just ran the clock. It, it rained throughout the second half. Georgia just threw four passes the whole second half. They were content to run the clock. They knew Tennessee couldn't score enough to come back and win, and, and so that was that. Wound up being a 14-point fit victory that felt more like four touchdowns. Other than confirming that, that Georgia is the team to beat in college football still, what did this game say to you? Well, I'd uh, almost come to the conclusion that Tennessee's offense was unstoppable. So let's uh, throw that out the door. Georgia had a great plan, executed it pretty much flawlessly, it was able to pressure Hendon Hooker, pressured him a lot right up the middle with Jalen Carter leading the way. And uh, it has really, really good defensive backs who can play the ball, who can play man-to-man, run with Tennessee wide receivers. So that was somewhat surprising to me that Georgia could do that. I know it it had that potential, but nobody done that. And I, I think the point is that there's Georgia and then there's everybody else because Alabama has good athletes on defense. I don't think anybody doubts that, but it couldn't stop. uh, It couldn't stop Tennessee's offense. Couldn't slow it down. That was the uh, one big take from me. And as far as Tennessee goes, I, I don't think just because Georgia had success that that implies other teams will. So I think Tennessee will roll through the rest of its schedule keep piling up the points as it did pre-Georgia. And then, as for Georgia, what I'd like to see from Georgia, if it's the national championship to be, as it was last year, consistency. It played against Oregon. That was one of the most, and that was a season opener, but that was one of the most dominant games I've ever seen between two nationally ranked teams. I think Georgia scored pretty much every time it had the ball. And even sometimes when it didn't have the ball, it just took it from Oregon and said, we'll score this way too. (laughs) Yeah, it was 49 to three. But we didn't really see that Georgia again. I mean, I I know it dominated South Carolina, but South Carolina is pretty average. Uh, But then there were lapses against Kent State. Then the just dreadful showing against Missouri, which almost upset the Bulldogs. So if you're going to finish this thing, you can't play at that high level occasionally. I don't think you can turn it on and off. So I think that's Georgia's challenge now. Just play up to its capabilities, be consistent, go out there, 
the way great Alabama teams have done in the past. Yeah, I wrote this after the game, John. It, it was like Georgia played possum for two weeks when when they were playing Kent State and Missouri. But they've they they're awake now. I, I think they've probably put that behind them. I also think you know you you rattled off some of the games: Oregon, Tennessee. South Carolina early in the season, I mean, that's considered a, a rivalry game. It's not the same for Georgia as some of their other rivalries, but South Carolina considers it, you know, one of their top rivalries. You know, those are big dates kind of circled on your schedule. Although, you know, it, it could be a little concerning. This hasn't been the most consistent team. It, it, it is a team that has gotten up for the biggest games and has de- delivered its best performances in, in those big moments. And, and the thing of it was, John, you know, I think Tennessee fans would tell you oh, that, you know, they, they can play much better than that. And I think Tennessee can. I think on a neutral side, it would help them. The crowd really got to Tennessee, seven false starts. But that wasn't Georgia's best game either. Georgia had a couple of turnovers that, uh, you know, negated drives. Also, Kirby Smart had some bizarre clock management, which he admitted he, he screwed up. At the end of the first half, that cost Georgia a touchdown opportunity. They had to settle for a field goal when they almost certainly would have scored a touchdown had they had, you know, an extra 30 seconds of time, which they should have. Kirby Smart wasn't going into less mile mode there for, you know, five minutes of the game. And then also, like I said, Georgia really wasn't trying to score the last quarter and a half. They, the rain factored into that. And I think their sizable lead factored into that. And they just said, we got enough here. We'll just run the clock. Yeah. I didn't even feel like this was Georgia's best performance. And yet they won without question. It was a dominating effort. I, I knew their secondary was was going to be good and, and give Tennessee more problems than what Alabama's did. This thing that surprised me, John, was how much they got to Hinn and Hooker. This was a team that hadn't been pressuring the quarterback all that much. Tennessee was a team that had been protecting Hinn and Hooker all year, and Georgia sacked him six times. I mean, it seemed like every every key third down play, especially in the second half, Georgia was all over. Hinden Hooker. It felt like, in many ways, the names had changed, but that felt like last year's defense with just how much they were affecting their opponent up front, combined with with a back end performance that I think you know very few teams in the country could do to Tennessee. And, and my question, John, is if Georgia, let's not even say it's best day, but Georgia, if it has a good day, a day like Saturday. Is there any team that can beat Georgia, do you think, on a, on a good or better day from Georgia? It's hard to see that now, but I, I, don't, I mean, I haven't watched Ohio State enough. I've watched it play two games. I've watched parts of one of Michigan's games. Nothing I've seen from Ohio State indicates to me it could beat Georgia. Ohio State is playing without a lead running back, so that's a factor. It does have another good running back. But uh, I, I just don't. I, I just don't see how Ohio State could hang with Georgia from what I've seen. Now maybe it will elevate its game. Ryan Day's obviously a good coach. Anybody else out there? Ohio State and Michigan feels like the the short list. I mean, I, I love Ohio State's complement of wide receivers. Yeah. Um, you know, when when they're fully healthy, mm-hmm. which they're, you know, getting getting back to to that point. They still don't have their their top wide receiver back, but you know Marvin Marvin Harrison Jr. has emerged into their new top top receiver, and they have multiple really good targets. But so did Tennessee. Um, I think the other thing this tells me, John, is 
know, Tennessee's scheme has been very difficult on on opponents. I think scheme can make up some talent gap. You know, apples to apples, I think Alabama has more talent than Tennessee did, but the scheme put Tennessee in position to succeed against Alabama. But Georgia is even more talented than Alabama. Georgia's, I think, the most talented team in the country yet again. Their their DBs are are just studs. And I, I think scheme could only do so much there, especially when you're a well-coached team. There weren't coverage busts. You know, how many teams have we seen this year have had coverage busts for Tennessee and you know, Hendon Hooker's just got to throw it in the vicinity of a guy and he's going to go for a touchdown. We didn't see a single coverage bust on Saturday for Georgia. They didn't give up anything easy. Tennessee came into the game leading the nation in plays of at least 30 yards. More plays of 30 yards than anybody else in the nation. They didn't have a single play for 30 yards uh, on Saturday. So, you know, several keys, that was one of them. They, they didn't, Georgia didn't get beat by big plays, and, and Tennessee could not sustain drives, uh, particularly because it seemed like huh, every couple minutes they were getting a false start penalty and, and going five yards in reverse. It was just interesting, John, because Georgia wins its big matchup on the same day Alabama has a big matchup, a chance to you know, confirm its standing as the team to beat in the West, and they couldn't do it. Brian Kelly, in his first year, goes for two. A critical moment, thought it was a smart decision. Some people have called it a gutsy call. I didn't really think it was a gutsy call. It was just a smart decision, I thought, to, to go for two, try to win the game while the, the reigning Heisman winner is on the sidelines. Jaden Daniels completes the pass to Mason Taylor. It was interesting. Those are two Brian Kelly guys. Jaden Daniels was brought in by Brian Kelly, the quarterback, and Mason Taylor is a freshman, you know, whose college career has, has uh, got off to a good start here under Brian Kelly. But with Nick Saban losing for the second time this season, lost to Tennessee, ending Alabama's 15-game winning streak against the Vols, and then loses just the second time in the last 12 meetings, against LSU. Are we seeing some long-lasting vulnerability from Alabama? Do you see this as just a bad season by Alabama's standards? Or is Kirby Smart passing for good Nick Saban as as the top coach in the SEC? Is Georgia passing Alabama for good as as the team to beat, not only now, but into the future in, in the SEC? I think there's a tendency to overreact to anything that happens to Alabama that doesn't include uh, total domination on its part. I think we look for flaws uh, with Alabama because it's been so good for so long, and, and Nick Saban is justifiably recognized as the greatest college football coach of all time. I mean, I guess you can make a case for some guys a long time ago. Uh, Bear Bright, certainly in the conversation. But when you look at national titles, Nick Saban is the guy. Uh, but I, I do think it's hard to pinpoint this, but I, Nick Saban doesn't look the same on the sideline to me this year. And there's nothing scientific about that. It's just an observation. It may be meaningless, but he just doesn't, he doesn't look like somebody who's going to come up with a solution when a solution is called for. He looks a little bit more detached. And that may be simply because things aren't going well. And so then I look at Nick Saban and, look, and say, oh, yeah, it's uh, I, I put the two together. So uh, that's uh, 
<laughs> that that's not a great analysis, I know, but it's just uh, it, it's just something that struck me. Uh, but I would say that Kirby Smart now, I would uh, I, I would put Kirby Smart at the top of the heat right now in college coaching. I don't. I think you look at what he's done with the defense, how he's managed that program, how he's recruited. It's not as though he's just he's just copying what Nick Saban has done. He was worked for him for seven years, I think. So he's his own guy now, and he's he's having great he's having great success. And I watch him on the sidelines and. Uh, I see a guy that seemingly is more engaged than Nick Saban is right now. And that may be a totally erroneous observation. I admit that. But I do think if I if I were getting ready to par- prepare a team to play somebody, you know, I would be concerned if it were Georgia, I'd be concerned about the coaching element. I think Georgia has a really good coaching staff. I think Todd Munkin does a good job with the offense. So right now I would I'd have to go with Kirby. If I'm looking at what's going to happen in the next 3 years, I'd probably take Kirby and and Georgia over Nick Saban in Alabama. Yeah, I think that's the key. We're we're obviously not having this conversation about, you know, who's the better coach in terms of totality of their their career as you said. No. You know, Nick Saban is is not only just the best active coach, he's probably the best coach of uh of all time. But I think what you said right there, going into the future for this moment and the future, I agree with you for the next three years or five years or whatever. I mean, I I think I would be happy to have either of those guys. You know, if you're starting a team from scratch, sure. But if I have the first pick in the the coaching draft and I'm building, you know, a college program for the next three to five years, Kirby Smart's the first coach off the board. Would you go Nick Saban as your second coach off the board? From the SEC, John, do you, are you tempted at all from Brian Kelly? I mean, it, it is, it is no. Regardless of of your answer, I'm going to give you a pause here for in just a minute to let you respond. But it, it is remarkable what Brian Kelly, I think, has done. When you look at where this team was from the season opener, which was just a mess at the Superdome and a loss to to Florida State, a game they almost rallied to win, but still just a a bad performance in, in almost every area from LSU that night to now they're in the driver's seat of the West. They could go 10 and two going into the sec championship. Um, you know, he inherited some talent for sure, but he didn't, did not inherit a ton of depth uh, from, from his predecessor Ed Ogeron. He adds some transfers seems to have changed the mentality of that program in a, in a couple months. And now here he is in, in position in his first year to win the West. So, you know, if we're doing a, a coaching draft to lead your program into the next three to five seasons and Kirby smart, I've taken him first off the board. You like Brian Kelly or, or Nick Saban with your next pick? Well, there, the age is a factor too. I mean, I don't know how long Nick Saban wants to coach. All right, let's just say three years in, in the next three years. Let's take five off the board. Nick Saban, 71. Okay. Let's um, say he wants to coach another three years. Okay. Um, you know what? I, I would, based on track record, and I think I agree with you, Brian Kelly's done a tremendous job, but for the next three years, I'd probably take Nick Saban. And the re, one of the reasons for that is Nick Saban has been this good for this long, 
Why? Because he constantly adapts and adjusts. So whatever has not worked out this year, I think he will fix that. I look for Alabama. The concern would be who's your quarterback. That would be a concern. So Brian Kelly stacked well at uh, quarterback. So that's a tough one. But but I think Nick Saban could get a quarterback in the transfer portal. I think Nick Saban has to do something with transfers. He helped himself with transfers this year, I thought. Uh, might get more involved with that. And he needs to fix what's what's wrong. And his receiving core has been awful. And that's been one of the strengths of Alabama for quite a while. Paraded one future NFL receiver after another uh, through Tuscaloosa. So he's got to fix that. And he's got to get him a quarterback. So I don't know. I guess I still believe that Nick Saban will not go out on a decline that he will rally from this season. And maybe it'll take go to the 2024 season for he, before he rebounds fully. But uh, I guess I'd still still take Nick Saban. But I, I, I have been really impressed with Brian Kelly. It's, it's interesting, John. You go back to the, the preseason and Nick Saban, while discussing all these evolutions in college football, you know, the, the transfers, the NIL, the, the, the recruiting collectives, he mentioned how college football is, is losing its parody, which of course, you know, was kind of like, wait, what is he doing a bit here? <laughs> because college football is a sport that throughout its history has never really enjoyed uh, much parody. And, and certainly that's been the case while Nick Saban has been the coach of Alabama. There, there was really very, very little parody in the sport. In fact, that's been one of the biggest complaints um, up to the last couple seasons about the four-team college football playoff, which you had the same teams in it so many times over and over because there wasn't that parody in college football. Um, so it was what Saban was saying at the time was more, um, he was saying everybody, you know, whether you were playing at Middle Tennessee State uh, or Alabama, if you were a scholarship player, you know, you got a full-ride scholarship. And, and in that way, there was parody. Of course, he left out <laughs> a lot of the other ways where Alabama and a school like middle Tennessee, uh, or even power, some power five schools don't have parody. Um, but beyond his comments, you look at it now, I actually think this season of college football, John, there's been more parody than what we're accustomed to in this sport. And it's not that NIL is really turned recruiting on its head in terms of the talent distribution. I mean, you know, maybe it's turned the process on its head a little bit, but you look at the recruiting rankings, you know, Alabama uh, was right there behind Texas A&M last year, and Alabama right now has the nation's number one ranked recruiting class. Georgia has the nation's number two ranked recruiting class. I mean, that doesn't feel like a recruiting model that's been turned on its head. That feels like huh, kind of the same old story, right? How many times haven't we looked at the rankings uh, since Kirby Smart has been at Georgia? and seen Alabama and Georgia in, in the top two or three in the rankings. That's kind of the same old story. But one change that I think has really affected the sport and maybe is adding some more parity is the transfer situation. I mean, where would LSU be this season without Jaden Daniels? I don't think they'd be in the driver's seat in the SEC West. Where would Ole Miss be you know, without players like Jackson Dart and Zach Evans? 
they wouldn't be eight and one going into this game uh, against Alabama on Saturday. At least, you know, I, I doubt that they they would be. So I do think, you know, it has open avenues for a program like Ole Miss that maybe you know Ole Miss is not signing top five recruiting classes on a regular basis, or in a situation like LSU where they've gone through a coaching change, they're lacking some depth, they need an influx of talent. Brian Kelly was able to get that in the transfer portal. In the old model, I think Alabama is atop the West right now because a team like LSU could not reload through the portal and the way it has. Same with Ole Miss. Ole Miss reloaded in the portal as well. So I do think that is a change we've seen this year that although Alabama has added some talented transfers as well, I think it's helped other programs with LSU and Ole Miss being prime examples even more than it's helped Alabama. Yeah, you're right, Blake. I think the biggest difference, Alabama will continue to recruit elite classes, and I think it will get, it will cherry pick really good transfers. But what changes is the depth chart and the quality of depth overall. I don't think Alabama can stockpile guys at every position the way it once did because players will leave and go play somewhere else. I mean, it's worked very well for Alabama, and it's worked very well for the players. But players want to play, and they have that opportunity now to transfer, and I just think they'll take advantage of it more and more and more often. Uh, In the past, when Alabama – I think Nick Saban's philosophy was he used competition as well as anybody, internal competition. If you're not playing at a high level, he's got somebody else right behind you. He's going to check them out and see if they can play at a higher level. It doesn't matter who you are. Go back to the 2017 season when Jalen Hurts was his quarterback. Alabama's going for a national title. Well, in the championship game, he, uh, Nick Saban pulls uh, Tua Tagovailoa off the bench and replaces Jalen Hurts, his his star quarterback. I don't think he'll be able to do that again. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but that and that's just one position. In in fact, the most important position. But I think it's overall. I've always noticed Alabama late in games that were completely out of hand. Alabama was winning comfortably. And it would bring guys in on defense or maybe a running back. And I would think they, they would make a play or two. They just make a play that just got your attention. And you think, well, they're going to lose so-and-so. But look at this guy. He could be the next big star. And and oftentimes he was. I just don't know if you could stockpile that much depth. So, again, it gets back to adjusting and adapting to a new situation And Nick Saban's history says he can do that, and I still think he will. John, uh, let's uh, let's change gears here, and um, it seems like we we can't get into a or get through a podcast without without discussing Jimbo Fisher, and and part of that is because Texas A and M has been the the biggest disappointment in, in college football this season, and that continued this past weekend with. Texas A&M under fifth-year coach and handsomely paid Jimbo Fisher falling to first-year coach Billy Napier and a pretty average Florida team, a Florida team that improved to 5-4, and four, uh, had its way with Texas A&M at Kyle Field 
on Saturday. Now, Texas A&M was, was missing numerous players from that game, battling the, the flu bug it was, which, if nothing else, provides a convenient excuse to the latest, uh, the latest defeat and now what has become a five-game losing streak. John, we've talked about it before. Jimbo Fisher's buyout, $87.5 million. It's huge. It would be by far the biggest buyout anybody's ever paid to fire a coach. We've also said anytime we're amazed when a school pays a buyout, they usually do. But is there any way Jimbo Fisher would be in this position today, meaning he's employed as Texas A&M's coach, if not for that buyout? Let, let's say the buyout was $18 million, which is still a pretty good chunk of change. Uh, comparison's sake, Auburn just paid uh, Brian Harson 15 plus million, or that's what they will have to pay him for that firing last week. So let's say that, let's say the A&M buyout was 18 million instead of 87 and a half million, which is hard to just even say with a straight face for Jimbo Fisher. Would Jimbo Fisher be employed today if his buyout was 18 million? Uh, There's no way. I I don't know. I don't think he would make it to the mid, have made it to the midway point of the season. Uh, I look at at Texas A&M and and I, watch a lot of all these SEC teams uh, game after game. And the team that that just seems to be have lost have lost heart is A&M uh, of all the teams. I, I mean, other teams might not have as much talent. Uh, they're struggling. They've had injuries as A&M has. But it's it it's just doesn't look like you know, it's just lost interest. It seems like, and, and that a lot of that's on the coach. Uh, you know, he's talking about how you have to. Uh, this is a time. Uh, this is a test for your character. You know, I think A and M's probably failed that test, but I think I don't think it's has failed it as substantially as Jimbo has failed. I mean, I look at Jimbo now. And I just see, I talked about Nick Saban, how he's adjusted and how he's kept adapting to the changes in the game, changes in the rule. Jimbo's offense look like it's always looked. I don't see much different. Now, maybe there is, maybe there've been subtle changes, but he hasn't developed a quarterback. His offense doesn't work and he's supposed to be an offensive guy. Yeah, so, we, we can we can just permanently remove that uh, label of offensive guru. That has been buried, and uh, we we might hold a funeral for it next week on the podcast. Offensive guru label removed. It is dead as it applies to Jimbo Fisher. He's just a guy now. Jimbo Fisher is just just a guy. He's like that guy in your office, the guy in your company, um, or gal, who's been with with your company for a long, long time, and you think, boy, back in the day. You'd uh, you ought to have seen them go to work. <laughs> you know, they were they were something to behold in this company back in the day. But now we just we just stick them off in the corner and they're they're overpaid, but you know, we can't really reduce their salary. So we we hope they'd go away. We'd we'd have a you know, we'd buy a little cake, a sheet cake, have a nice little party for them, remember the good times, but punch bowl. Yeah, the punch bowl. Uh-huh. Yeah. Blake, yeah. uh, do you think some people at the at our company look at me that way? Oh no, John. No, no I wouldn't. Okay. You're not no. putting me. If, in if the you thought I yet? was talking about you, that's that's your own insecurities. Uh, that's not me trying to 
I wasn't casting you out that way, right? But that's what Jimbo is. You know, he, he once was a national champion coach. Now he's just a guy. He's just a guy that you're stuck with. Um, and you can't get rid of because the severance package is, is too big. So you're hoping he'll just disappear one day and not be at work anymore. Um, but doesn't doesn't work that way, especially not in college football. You're going to have to pay the man the money uh, or you're going to be stuck with him. And here's the biggest, I don't know about the biggest problem, uh, one of the many problems for Texas A&M, John, is Jimbo can't sell a brighter future at this moment. He could sell some of those freshmen, sure. Texas A&M's recruiting rankings right now, here's where they stand in the 24-7 composite. They're 17th nationally. Sounds okay. SEC standards, that's not good. Some of the teams Texas A&M trails right now in the recruiting rankings include South Carolina and Arkansas. They're looking up at South Carolina and Arkansas. Nipping at the Aggies' heels in the recruiting rankings is Louisville. You know, you know who that sounds like? That sounds like Dan Mullen at Florida last year. And Dan Mullen, I agree with you, or at Jimbo Fisher, I agree with you. He'd be suffering the same fate as what Dan Mullen did last year, who had a bad year in year four of his tenure, had lost recruiting momentum. That's all it takes at a school with the expectations like Florida, and all it would take would be a season like this one uh, at a school with the expectations like Texas A&M, if not for that $87.5 million buyout. Might buy him you know, an, another chance next year, but I, I don't think it's going to – at some point, the, the misery is going to pile up enough that, that they'll make something happen. But, John, my other question is, when are these schools, when are these athletic directors going to just stop with the totally inane contract extensions? I mean, I couldn't believe it. You know, there's there's all these parody accounts out there these days on on, on Twitter, and that's one of Eli Musk's 7,000 challenges as he takes the reins at, at Twitter <laughs> is what to do with all these parody accounts. And so I'm sitting in the press box at Sanford Stadium on Saturday, getting ready for Tennessee, Georgia, and I see a tweet that says, Eli Drinkwitz has received a two-year contract extension. And I thought, oh, here we go. Here's another parody account. Is someone impersonating a sports writer trying to dupe us into believing Eli Drinkwitz has received a two-year contract extension? And then, no. I read it. The, the, the beat writers are the ones telling me this. It's true. Eli Drinkwitz, a man with a 15-17 and 17 record now. In, in year three at Missouri, his, his, his record at Missouri is 15-17 and 17 after just another bizarre Missouri game on, on Saturday. They are always involved in some strange ones. A, a late uh, roughing the punter penalty that on a play. If you haven't seen it, you got to look it up. The Kentucky snapped it over the punter's head and punter had to run backward about 20 yards to get the ball, but he was still in the tackle box. And so when a Missouri player tried to tackle him and while the punter was punting it, that technically is roughing the punter. So strange rule, Kentucky moved the chains on the penalty and won the game. But the larger point, John, this is a guy who, you know, is, is on a worse pace than his predecessor, Barry Odom. Uh, he's not showing much momentum here in his third season. And yet here we are two year contract extension, a pay raise, for Eli Drinkwitz, now the full details haven't been released, but typically when you get an extension and a pay raise, that comes with an increase of your buyout as well. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago we were talking on this podcast, John, about whether Drinkwitz leads the hot, hot seat pecking order. And here's Mizzou handing out two extra years uh, to a guy who's got a sub-500 record. You know, 
two thirds of the way through his third season on the job. I mean, who, who is kicking down the door right now to try to steal Eli Drinkwitz away from Missouri? I'd, I'd like to see that list of suitors whom Missouri had to fend off with this two-year contract extension. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm accustomed to college administrators, not just ads, but chancellors and presidents making bizarre uh, decisions that are totally uh, incongruent with with what's going on. Of uh, just sh- seemingly being completely out of touch. Like, why would? How do you justify something like that? It's so easy to spend somebody else's money. It's just so easy. When Eli Drinkowitz's name popped up on the crawl of my screen, I thought, oh, my gosh, Missouri has fired him before kickoff. Just Mm -hmm. had enough. uh, We got to make a change here. Maybe they'll fire the team up for this uh, Kentucky challenge. But, no, it was an extension. It it was a head-scratcher. I've seen a lot of – I've seen a lot of contract extensions and you look at them and say, well, why would you do that? What's the point? Because do you think anybody still believes that you in this era that, uh, Hey, my contract's dwindling down. You want to re up it because recruiting will kill recruiting. You think anybody still believes that? I, I don't believe there's a single recruiting target that Missouri has who could have told you how many years were left on Eli Drinkwitz's contract before this extension, which by the way, there were three, there were three years left on the contract. It's not as like his contract was going to expire on December one. <laughs> you know, the, the sports world does not work like the rest of us do normally. You know, if you work on a contract job, you take it close to the end of the deal and then maybe you get a new one. No, Drinkwitz still had three years left on his deal. And Missouri said, uh, uh-uh, that's not enough. We're going to slap two more on here give him a fresh five-year deal. But no, I don't think there's a recruit in the nation, John, who could have told you how many years left Eli Drinkwitz has on his contract. It's one of the dumbest narrative in all sports is that you have to give these contract extensions to coaches to help them in recruiting. I mean, what what recruiting target out there, their first question to the coach is, coach, how many years you got left on the contract? Is it three? Is it four? Is it five? I know it's not less than three because nobody nobody works on a contract less than three years. How many are you going to be there in the next seven years? No, they want to know. Show me the money. Where's where's the NIL deals coming from? How many alternate jerseys do you have? What kind of cool wide receiver gloves you do you got, have? Uh, yeah, you've got uh, yeah three three years to a. 17, 18 year old, that, that seems like a couple of decades away. <laughs> They're not, and, and all of them pretty much think I'm getting ready to be the next big star. It really doesn't matter who the coach is. I just want to be rewarded for my potential and my future production. And I kind of like a three year deal too. That that's the only three year deal they be thinking about. I just, uh, yeah, I read quotes from University of Missouri's president and chancellor, and oh my gosh, like they're on another planet. Talked about the progress and excitement surrounding the program. I mean, what? What? What you talking about, Georgia? I mean, what? It was just, it was just totally bizarre. It, it was and, parody content happening in real life. Yeah. You know, one of these parody websites or uh-huh. parody Twitter accounts could not yeah. have made up better quotes 
um, than what Missouri's administrators were actually providing for a real contract extension. Yeah, and what was good about it is then you watch this Missouri Kentucky game, and Eli Drinkwitz is a quote offensive guy, and you saw that offense. Yeah, I mean, it's just stumbling around out there, and it's just. Oh, man, it, it was the perfect follow-up to that deal. If you were going to do a parody of a coaching situation in a team, that would be perfect. That would have been perfect. But this is real. I know. Oh, well, John, I, I, you know, we, we have one of the easiest jobs in America, really. You know, being a sports writer, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not performing brain surgery. By any means, we might probably have a few brain surgeons listen to this podcast. But uh, being a being a college administrator, I think ranks right up there uh, oh. with with our line of work. I mean, you, you throw a you throw a wad of paper down a crowded street, and it could bounce off somebody's head. That's probably do a better job than some of these administrators were. I guarantee you, they wouldn't be handing out two year contract extensions to a guy with a with a record that's now fifteen and seventeen uh, <laughs> through three seasons, but. <laughs> Anyway, here we are. That's a good segue, John. That gets us to our records in the pick segment here as we look forward to a full slate of games this weekend. I had a good week last week. I went I went six and three, and uh, I'm now approaching Eli Drinkwitz terrain in my overall record. Uh, for the season, I'm in the lead at 25, 34, and one. John, you had a rough week last week. You went two and seven. And you're now one game back at 24, 35, and, and 1. <laughs> but it's young season left. Those who win in November get remembered. So Or, or get contract extensions. I, I may get a contract extension on this podcast. I don't know about you, but I think I'm getting one after yeah, that. I wouldn't be surprised, John. Yeah. They, and what do you got, four or five years left on your deal? They want to yeah, that, that to probably a good round six years left or something. I'm calling my agent as soon as this podcast is concluded. Does Jimmy Sexton represent you? <laughs> no, I, I figured I, I wanted a little more hands-on care. He's got too many guys out there. <laughs> All right, He's well, negotiating uh, Jimbo Fisher's deal. <laughs> yeah, Jimbo. Wouldn't that be something? Next Saturday, contract extension announced for Jimbo. Would it really surprise you? It wouldn't. No, uh, no it would not. <laughs> All right, let's, let's start, John, with uh, the Red Hot LSU Tigers, uh, three-point favorites on the on the road at Arkansas. And might I say we, we've we've not mentioned John uh, the Auburn coaching search. Of course, we dedicated almost a full podcast to it late last week. You can find that in your queue if you haven't checked it out yet. But you know, one of the names we discussed in that search was Hugh Freeze, and I think we both, if you can get past the moral turpitude of uh, Hugh Freeze's past, we both like him as a coaching candidate for uh for auburn i think you might might like him a little bit more after his liberty flames beat arkansas on the road last weekend arkansas continues a disappointing season now they will host lsu the chance to play spoiler uh, i'll lead us off here i think lsu covers um again i just continue to like the the trajectory that they are on looks like a different team than the one i saw at the beginning of the season it, all along the way, I never questioned LSU's talent. I did question their depth, and I did question how quickly, you know, this culture that Brian Kelly wants to build would come together. But looks like a different program right now than it did 
you know, two months ago. Uh, so I like them to cover this three point spread. I think that's a really tough game. I, I agree with everything you say about LSU, but LSU struggles with Arkansas sometimes. And I wonder how it will handle success. It's had wins over Ole Miss and, and now Alabama, but still, Arkansas is struggling. Uh, Kendall Browles, their offensive coordinator, is even getting blowback from fans which who haven't been paying attention. Arkansas lacks a big-time receiver. Uh, I just don't know if he can keep up with LSU. Jaden Daniels, I think, will make more plays than K.J. Jefferson, so I will go with uh, LSU as well. Okay, two picks for LSU. I almost wrote down Arkansas. You surprised me there. You're making a good good case. Yeah, I like to yeah try <laughs> decoy throw decoys out there. All right, let's see what you do with this one, John. Um, clash for the ages. Vanderbilt on the road at basketball school, Kentucky. Kentucky though, sports books like them in this one. Seventeen and a half point favorite against the Doors after that big win, helped by a roughing the punter penalty on the road in the menacing confines of Furrow Field. So Kentucky now 17 and a half favorite against Vanderbilt. You're batting leadoff. Who do you have? Well, I, 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 Vanderbilt's defense is is horrible. Uh, Kentucky can probably score on it, but I think Vanderbilt will put up some points too. I just, I just don't know about Kentucky. I watched Tennessee just rip it apart, 44-6. to six. So I, I'm going to take the points. I don't like taking Vanderbilt under most circumstances, but I'll take Vanderbilt at 17.5 points. I will too. I think that's too many points uh, for Kentucky to have to cover. Their offense just um, its not scoring a lot. They haven't scored more than 27 points against any SEC opponent. Um you know, they've, they've really only had one blowout victory all season. That was in the season opener against Miami, Ohio. Oh, they blew out Youngstown State as well, but who's who's counting that one? So, yeah, I think Kentucky wins, but 17.5 points, I pretty I feel pretty comfortable saying uh, Vanderbilt will, will cover that spread. Uh, game I'll be at on Saturday, John. Alabama, despite the loss to, to LSU, sports books like him uh, on the road, at Lane Kiffin's Ole Miss on Saturday, Alabama, 11.5-point favorite. I'll lead off by taking Ole Miss here. Um, Ole Miss, still don't know what to make of them entirely. They're, they're toughest games. They're, they're all backloaded in the, in the schedule. They lost really the toughest game they played this year um, against LSU on the road. That was a strange game. Ole Miss was right in it late in the third quarter. Jackson Dart threw a touchdown into the end zone. You know, if that if that drive has a different result, I don't know. I, I think LSU wins that game, but I certainly don't think it's a 25-point loss for Ole Miss. They, they run the ball really well. wonder if they can give Alabama some trouble that way. I, I kind of consider this a bit of a toss-up game. I've lost a lot of faith in Alabama. So you give me 11.5 points, I'll take the Rebels. I think it really depends on how uh, Jackson Dart plays. Uh, he cuts out the mistakes, makes some big plays on the ground. I, I could see Ole Miss even upsetting Alabama playing at home. But I do like the points. I mean, uh, took the points with LSU against Alabama, took the points with Tennessee against Alabama. All about the same kind of spread, low double digits. So I like Ole Miss as well in that game. All right, you're you're up first on this one. John at Florida, 
as much as we can downgrade or, or uh, belittle the season that Texas A&M has, has had, still, first-year coach Billy Napier going on the road, beating A&M uh, to get Florida to 5-4. and four. You read the, 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 the message boards and the, and the Twitter sphere. I don't know if that's the best cross-section of a fan base. I think you get the extremes in those places. But you, you come across a lot of criticism of Napier's first season at Florida. And I, it just doesn't add up for me. Uh, I mean, he's got losses against Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and LSU. But, you know, he beat Utah. He beat Missouri. He beat Texas A&M. And now Florida hosts South Carolina with a chance to get to bowl eligibility as an eight-point favorite. I, I think those that are that are leaning into criticism of Napier aren't being realistic about the situation he inherited at Florida, which was a depth chart, which was very atypical to the talent Florida normally enjoys. So anyway, that's a strong defense of a coach who's five and four in his first season. But be that as it may, I, I think it's been a decent coaching job in, in year one. So h- how do you like uh, this game? Florida favored by eight. Well, I like Florida win the game. Uh, do I want to give up eight points? I don't know. I think when you're struggling as I am in your picks, you pretty much lose confidence in your ability to analyze anything. And you just kind of, there's a tendency to go, go A and M and just sort of give up and just say, Oh, I don't want to wait. I don't even want to think about this. So that's what I'll do. I just won't think about it. I'll take South Carolina at eight points. You've given up and you've taken South Carolina. Yes. Uh, well, that's not a good sign for me because I like Florida to win after that that long monologue um, describing <laughs> how great it's been to see Florida go five and four to this juncture this season. <laughs> I'll take Florida to win, but not cover the spread. So we are we are in lockstep so far. Uh, John, will Georgia have a slip up after the big win over? Over Tennessee, will they they be caught looking ahead? Georgia is a sixteen and a half point favorite at Mississippi State. Mississippi State raced out to a huge lead on on Auburn, then needed overtime to win that game. Mississippi State remains a fairly inconsistent team, even within the confines of a single game. <laughs> can can have inconsistent moments, but they they did pull out the win, and now they host Georgia, sixteen and a half favorite. I'll go first here. I, I say Georgia covers. I just, you know, if we think back to the the game against Missouri or even that Kent State game, we could say, ah, oh, Georgia's, uh, they're going to play possum again and, and might fool around with their with their meal here. I don't think so. I, I think Georgia's gearing up for a big finish to the season. I think, uh, you know, last week's game was a was a start to a big November, and uh, I'll take Georgia to win big and, and cover 16 and a half. Well, here's the thing. It's not just about Georgia. It's also about Mississippi State. And Mississippi State gave up way too many points to Auburn. Uh, I mean, that right. That that really got my attention. Uh, I just don't – I think uh, I think Georgia uh, rolls in this game, uh, which probably means Mississippi State will come close to upsetting them. But I'll, uh, I'll take Georgia as well and give the points. All right, let's not – waste much time on this one given the two teams involved texas a&m at auburn auburn two-point favorite 10 seconds or less john i'll take texas a&m boom i'm doing the i'm doing the same uh don't feel great about it but 
I put Auburn one step below the Aggies in the conference futility uh, pecking order. Uh, all right, last SEC game, John, before we step outside of the conference for one and get to our locks of the week. The aforementioned Missouri and the, the freshly extended Eli Drinkwitz is at Tennessee on Saturday. The Vols are 20.5-point favorites. Now, you might have noticed we have not discussed the, the college football playoff rankings on this podcast. We try to do this, this podcast early in the week, give you something to chew on. And so we've recorded this before the next rankings reveal, which, of course, comes out Tuesday night. John, I think Tennessee, as you're listening to this, maybe maybe I'll be proven wrong. I think Tennessee will be number four in the playoff rankings this week, but I think they, they will have some danger of being caught from behind by a team like TCU and or Oregon down the stretch. I think the Vols need a little help to make the playoff at this point. If... If if the division or the conference leaders around the land don't don't lose any games, if they all win out, let's say TCU wins out, um, if Oregon wins the Pac-12 at, at at 12 and one, and then let's say Georgia, you know, continues to roll and Ohio State wins the Big Ten, I think your playoff at that point, Tennessee fans won't like this, but I think it's Georgia, Ohio State, TCU, and Oregon. I don't think the committee is going to let everything hinge on the the score differential of a week one. Oregon loss to, to, to Georgia. I think they'll say they've gotten a lot better since then. Tennessee, though, can still make the playoff, I think. They just need some help, and, and the biggest thing that would help them would be TCU losing at, at some point along the way here. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think uh, I, I think t- TCU is not getting a fair shake by the committee. I think it plays in a com- very competitive league. And uh, I, I think a lot of those games are close, but they've got some some really good teams in it. The, there's not a, just a, a sh- really a sure win in that league, I don't think. So uh, I would give TCU some credit, but I still think Tennessee's in great shape. Uh, Georgia did Tennessee a huge favor Saturday. You if they would have so? kept pushing the ball offensively, Georgia could have won that game. You said it earlier by four touchdowns. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Tennessee was at a loss uh, on the deep ball. I thought Georgia exploited that weakness, a secondary weakness, better than any team has against Tennessee. Florida did it somewhat too. But uh, so, and, and I guess Alabama with 49 points. But uh, yeah, I just think Tennessee's still in really good shape. And I think that that helps motivate it for the rest of the season and get three opponents that they should win against. And and I think Missouri is one of those. So I expect Tennessee to be on the top of its game against Missouri. Do they cover the 20 and a half? I say, yeah, I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they covered 20 and a half against Missouri last year by halftime. They had 45 points. So do you think John, do you think Kirby would have kept the foot down more on the accelerator? Had the weather been different in the second half? Or do you think, you know, it seems like Kirby and Georgia with some opponents, they're they're comfortable just winning by a couple touchdowns, seventeen, maybe twenty points. Other opponents, I think there's a there's a couple teams in this league where Georgia and Kirby Smart really want to lay lay a whooping on. Uh, and I wonder about that program in Columbia, South Carolina, if that maybe ranks near the top of the list. But I, I kind of wonder if even even if the rain had been different, you know, the weather had been different in the second half. It seemed like Kirby was pretty content to just sort of nurse that uh, 
um, that lead and say, Hey, we'll, we'll take a two touchdown win here. We're going to, we're going to drain the clock. What, what do you think? I think the head coach and uh, Kirby smart yielded to the defensive coordinator's voice inside. And think about the conversation going into this game. And it was pretty much consistent. You can beat Tennessee maybe, but you can't stop their offense. So that's a challenge to a defensive guy like Kirby smart. So what does he do? He stops Tennessee's offense. But now, as the game's going along, I think he's thinking, I don't want Tennessee to get a couple of easy touchdowns. I'm not going to give them anything. So I think he became a defensive-minded coach, and it worked out fine for him. I think he would have played conservatively even if there hadn't been a rain. But maybe he was more conservative with the rain. But I still think he would have basically been conservative. I'm going to show – our defense played great. It'll keep playing great. We'll stop. On that on that note of Tennessee, John, a game that should be of interest, I would think, to Tennessee fans. It will be our, our out-of-conference pick this week. Washington on the road at Oregon. Oregon is a 12-and-a-half-point favorite. And I've said I, I think if Oregon wins out, they will be in the college football playoff. They have the, the one loss. It was to Georgia in the season opener. They got destroyed. Um, but they've been really, really good since then. Bo Nix is playing his way into the Heisman conversation. Uh, I think it's a testament to how well Oregon is playing uh, that they are a 12-and-a-half-point favorite against a Washington team that is and 7-2. Um, this is a tough line. I, I don't have a... I don't have a degree, an advanced degree in Pac-12 football. I try to stay up as as late as I can, as uh, you know, when I'm on the road covering games to to watch as much of the Pac-12 as possible. Um, what I've seen of Oregon, I, I've liked. Um, was really impressed with them in in the win over UCLA. Really like the way Bo Nix has been playing. I, I think they cover this this 12 and a half point spread as they continue to make the case for the committee that. Uh, as long as they win out, they're a playoff team. Yeah, Blake, I'm with you on that because I try to watch a lot of those late-night Pac-12 games. I watched Oregon against UCLA. I thought UCLA might win that game. Uh, I was wrong again. And uh, Oregon looked really good. Uh, that's a lot of points to give. But Oregon, Oregon is somewhat like Tennessee and that can score really fast. And it seems like, uh, you know, it, Bo Nix, uh, similar to Hendon Hooker, he's making plays running, passing, uh, and I think Oregon, when you start out a year and you lose the way it lost to Georgia, I mean, you look dead in the water. I mean, that was such a dominant defeat. Uh, from Oregon to bounce back from that, it has been very consistent ever since then, and I think now it can look out and see what's ahead of it. It's got a shot at the college football playoffs, certainly at the Pac-12 championship, so I think it will be very motivated. And I watch Washington lose to whom? Uh, maybe UCLA. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, they lost to UCLA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, I think if uh, UCLA could beat them, I think Oregon can too. So I'll take uh, I'll take Oregon and give the points. All right. Well, we are in unison down the line here on our picks, John. And I know we talked before recording here that we have the same lock of the week so we're it's going to be there's going to be no movement uh in in the standings here this week john you'll still be a game behind me i guess regardless of how we do on our picks 
uh, unless you're going to pull a, a late change. And we we discussed making TCU plus seven and a half points at Texas. We both discussed making TCU our, our lock and taking those seven and a half points. Are, are you going to change and try to catch me? Or are, you, are you okay taking this competition forward into the next week, one now, game back in the standings? Now, Blake, and, and I don't, uh, I've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not really, I know you're keeping score, but I don't really compete against you. I'm competing against a stand, standard that I set many years ago. And what you do is really irrele- irrelevant to me. I just want to, I want to compete against my standard of success. And if I can reach that, then I'm happy. But what you do, I mean, if you, you outpick me, that's great for you, but just doesn't really register with me. You know what this sounds like, John? Kind of right. sounds like the guy who's been with a company for a long time, making <laughs> a decent salary. He's not worried about anything going on around him, just sort of playing out the string. Uh, as long as you get through the day, meet your own standards to hell with everything else. You know what? Now that you say that, I work from home as you do for the most part, but uh-huh. I think I'll go into the office today, this afternoon, and just kind of kick my feet up on, prop them up on a desk and kind of kick back. Uh, let the bosses, let the gaffers see your face. I'm still here. I'm not uh-huh. going anywhere. We ain't getting rid of you, John. I think you're going to outlast Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. I really, I really do. Uh, we'll be back next week on SEC Football Unfiltered. Thanks for listening.